pray, shall we? And then we're going to open it up together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we just ask now, would you help us to understand and apply? Lord, would you be speaking to us as we, as we dig in and as we seek to see what this might say to us today? We say, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, would you not allow us to be blind to the things that we need to see? Would you not allow us to be deaf to the things we need to hear? Would you not allow our hearts to be closed off to the things that you would want to highlight to us today? Lord, I pray, would you give us hearts receptive? Lord, that your word may take root and bear fruit in our lives, we ask. Amen. So Luke wastes no time in introducing us to the main players in this chapter. Right up front in verse 1, he tells us who's there. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So we've got Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross to pay the price for the sins of mankind that we might be brought back to the Father, that we might be restored to relationship with God. And, and then we've got the rebels who were gathering to Jesus, who were drawn to him, these tax collectors and sinners. Now, tax collectors were essentially viewed by the Jews as, as traitors, who were collecting money for the Romans so that they could pay their soldiers in order to keep the Jews and other conquered peoples in check. Tax collectors were rotters and sinners gathering to Jesus. People who were known in one way or another to break the Jewish moral or ceremonial laws, these sinners renowned for their rebellion against God. And here Luke tells us they're gathering to Jesus. They're drawn to him. They're coming to him. We've got Jesus and we've got the rebels. And then finally Luke introduces us to our third group, the religious. The religious who did not like the fact that the rebels were drawing near to Jesus and that he wasn't turning them away. They were outraged. He welcomes them. Eats and drinks with them. What's going on? He should be telling them off and sending them away to change their ways. He's welcoming them. What's happening? And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, grumble against Jesus. This is not a great place to start, is it? And Jesus then tells these three parables in response to the grumbling of the religious leaders. He tells these three stories, all designed to make the same point and all targeted at this one group. Primarily, it's who he has in view when he tells these stories. And they all share common threads. In all three, something precious, something dearly loved is lost. Yeah? So a sheep, a coin, and a son. In, in all three, the lost are brought back to where they should be, to where they belong. They're restored. And in all three, there is great rejoicing 
about that restoration. There is incredible celebration. There is partying. And the sheep, the coin, and the sun all represent the rebels. These tax collectors and sinners who are coming to Jesus. They represent those who've run away from God. God comes after them. He sends his son to come for them, to come for us, that we might be restored to him. And we read over and over and over again in this passage. I don't know if you noticed, there's this great theme of celebration and rejoicing in this chapter. We read it multiple times, that there's great joy in heaven, or celebration in heaven, partying in heaven, when one sinner repents, when one person turns back to God. When one person comes to their senses, like the sun out in the fields, and realizes their need of God. When one person finds forgiveness and says, God, I'm, I'm going your way from now on. There's great rejoicing in heaven. The younger son comes to his senses. He repents, recognizes what he's done is wrong, and turns back to the father. And after all he's done, and his sins are grave indeed. We're not going to spend time taking a deep dive into what the son did today, but it was serious, right? His sins are grave indeed. And after all that, the father receives him. More than that, it seems the father has been waiting for him. The, The father has been eager for his return. So when he does come, the father throws the the mother of all parties to celebrate. It helps us understand that that God is not a kind of miserable, distant megalomaniac waiting to punish you for stepping out of line if you've walked away from him. He's a loving and generous father. He's longing and waiting and eager for you to return to him. When you do, all heaven celebrates. But the religious don't like that. (laughs) Outrageous, the Pharisees think. Like the tax collectors and sinners at the start, the younger son doesn't deserve it. It would be generous for the father to receive him back as a servant, wouldn't it? Like we think, kind of after all he's done, it would probably be more than reasonable of the father. It would actually be generous to welcome him back in some capacity in his household, even as a servant. And yet he welcomes him as a son. As though he's done nothing wrong. Incredible. Grace. Incredible. It's the heart of the gospel. This is good news. It should cause our hearts to rejoice when we hear it. Because that's how God wants to welcome us. Because of what Christ has done, it is possible that our sins can be utterly forgiven. That we can be justified, made as though our rebellion never existed. That we can be brought back into relationship with God. 
This account should excite us. And I think in our best moments it can do, can't it? (laughs) And it should also cause us to come back and remember again the joy of our salvation. Remember again that which Christ has done for us, that he's made it possible for us to be welcomed back as that prodigal son. But I fear that for many of us, it actually evokes little emotional response. That over time, perhaps we've grown familiar with the story, even perhaps a bit indifferent towards it. Perhaps even a bit indifferent to the grace of God in salvation. We find ourselves in a place where we take it somewhat for granted. And I think as we do, we get something of an insight into the heart of the older son. See, we often read this passage of the prodigal son and and we see ourselves there as, as the prodigal, as the younger son. We see ourselves in him, lost in sin until we were awakened to the mercy and grace of God. And in repentance, we come and find the great welcome of the Father. And we see ourselves there. If we're Christians, we think, yeah, that was me before I came to God. I was running away. I was looking. I was running headlong into pleasure, looking for satisfaction in other things until I came to my senses and realized, oh, I'm bankrupt without my father. I need to go back to him. This is all hollow. What I have in him. Or, when we read it, we... Focus on the Father. That's a great place to focus. We focus on the Father as a picture of God who welcomes sinners home. Father who's waiting for you to turn to Him, ready to embrace you. But I want us to take a little bit of time today to to actually consider the older brother. I'd like us to look at the religious ones rather than the rebels. Because I think perhaps today it's in the older brother whom some of us may need to see ourselves and hear the voice of Jesus. Instead of reading and dismissing the Pharisees, which is quite easy to do, isn't it? We read it and we're like, ah, the Pharisees. (laughs) Everyone likes to have a good laugh at them. Instead of reading and dismissing them. I think we might have more in common them with them than we'd like to admit. And I'd love for us to examine that for a moment today. See, it's easy to find faults and flaws in religious institutions. You know, we talked last week about Jesus loves the church, and as Christians, our heart should be for the church. And we looked at why, but we also acknowledged it's easy for us to look around and find flaws and faults in religious institutions and to be critical. It's easy to find ourselves joining in the chorus of people who say, I hate religion, but I love Jesus. It's actually easy to see the faults and flaws and hypocrisy in others who profess faith. But what's not so easy, but absolutely vital is to allow the light of Scripture to shine on our own hearts and to reveal where we may have begun to slip into some of the same pitfalls that the Pharisees had. 
the religious in this encounter with Jesus are just in much as need as the rebels are because there is a very real spiritual sickness in their hearts that I believe can creep up on us as Christians if we allow it to. I don't think you have to look far through the history of the church to see this is true. There are subtle ways in which we can begin to lose sight of the grace of God. And, and those subtle ways aren't actually always easy to spot, but it's essential we take the time to examine our hearts over this. I think there are some symptoms that we see in the older son, and it's where we're going to spend a bit of time today, that reveal the sickness of his heart that Jesus was using to point out what was wrong for the Pharisees. And I think as we read them and as we consider them, we may see how actually that might help us diagnose the condition of our own hearts. And the first is this. The older son had slipped into self-righteousness or pride. So the older brother, uh, so the younger brother has returned. And we're going to pick it up uh, just pretty near the end of the chapter. Uh, around verse 27. The brother has returned and the party has kicked off. And he, the older brother doesn't like this. And the father comes out to try and encourage him in, to bring him into the party, to, to invite him to join what's going on. And the older brother responds like this. He begins to argue his case. He says, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Is, is that not such a self-righteous statement? It begins to uncover what's going on in the older brother's heart. I mean, even to say, I've never disobeyed your command. Like we read that and we're like, I don't think that's likely. Really? Like what son could actually say that? With integrity, I've never disobeyed you, Father. None of us. Apart from Christ. <laughs> and he's not in view here. This is about us. Is, we read it and it kind of makes us smile because we're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You're delusional. But nevertheless, that's his perspective. See, critically, that's how he sees it. That's what he believes to be true. That's his view of himself. Father, I've been here all these years serving you faithfully, and I've never disobeyed you. He has a very high view of his own standing at that point in time. It's like, I'm the good one. I'm the one the Father should be pleased with. This is his perspective. He's delusional about his own goodness. He's caught up in pride. And he's comparing himself with his brother. And he thinks he comes out rather well in comparison. Like, he went off, but I've been here all these years. He rebelled against you, yet I've never disobeyed you, Father. My brother, he walked away, but I stayed. He rebelled. I've never disobeyed you. <laughs> I think we can all end up here in some ways because we like to compare ourselves with others, particularly if we can compare favorably with them. I think it's a, a, just a, a weakness of us as humans 
We have a tendency to try and make ourselves feel better about ourselves by finding people who are in some way worse than us and by observing their flaws and pointing out how we're not as bad as they are. We do it in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of scenarios. We always seem to be able to find someone who we can point at and go, I'm not as bad as they are. And over time, we can forget our brokenness and sin and our absolute need of the mercy of God. We can begin to have a very sanitized view of ourselves. We're the good ones. We're we're very faithful Christians. We're all here today, aren't we? Not like all those people that aren't in church today. I mean, we can begin to believe we're the good ones, the deserving ones, the faithful ones, the ones who've always been here, who've never disobeyed you. How quickly we can begin to grow a kind of self-righteousness. Like the older son and the Pharisees, we've become blind to the corruption and sickness inside. And that leads on to the next thing, that the next kind of symptom of the older son's sickness, and I think sometimes ours, he continues, having begun, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Then he goes, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So he begins with pride or self-righteousness, stating his case. Look how good I am. And then he proceeds to grumble towards his father, or in the case of the Pharisees, or perhaps us, to grumble against God. When we lose sight of God's grace in our lives, we can succumb to the spiritual sickness of grumbling against God. And it's a very dangerous place to be. See, what's happened here is that the older brother believes he has earned a blessing. He's earned a reward through his obedience, through his faithfulness. And he feels a sense of injustice that the younger brother has what he believes should be his. He's like, I deserve this. I've been here, I've been faithful, I've done all the right things, Father, and you've never even given me a goat. Which wouldn't make that good a feast, but you've never even given me a goat, and yet that son of yours comes home and you kill the fattened calf for him. He grumbles because he believes that he's earned it. He believes that he's deserving of this Reward from the Father. How easily we can end up thinking this way about our relationship with God. If we're good Christians, then God will bless us. If we're faithful Christians, then God will give us good things. We view it like a kind of cosmic slot machine. We put in obedience and faithfulness and good behavior like regular church attendance or we pray regularly or we read the bible and because we're faithful in these things then god should bless us we begin to have this 
transactional view of our relationship with God. That in some way we're entitled to certain things if we follow him. When we set out as Christians, I don't think that's generally how we view. When we first realize the wonder of his kindness and his grace towards us, that he would welcome a a sinner like me to come into a relationship with him. It's just staggering, is it not? The wonder of salvation that God would call us friends, that he would invite us and welcome us as his children dearly loved. (laughs) See, when we first become Christians, we can scarcely believe that he would welcome us, that he would invite us in, that he would bring us into a place of intimacy and relationship with him, of closeness with him. But over time, that can dull. And we can over time begin to think, hey, you know, there's, there's stuff I thought God would have done for me by now. But he hasn't. I don't know what it is for you. Like I thought I'd have that by now, but I don't. Like maybe for some of us, it's, it's a kind of position or status. I, I, but I, I've served faithfully. I thought if I did that, then I would get the recognition I deserve, the promotion at work. But I've been faithful. Or some kind of financial blessing, or maybe a relationship with someone. Maybe you've you're single and you're listening to this and you've longed for a relationship with someone or you've longed for restoration in a relationship and you thought, if I just, if I just, God will, surely, won't he? And we can grow to a point of grumbling almost against him. But God, I thought you'd have done that for me by now when we don't get what we want, when our hopes and prayers aren't fulfilled the way we want, we can find ourselves grumbling against him. How come you haven't given me more good in this life than this? Maybe some of you have had a particularly hard time in recent years. Many of us have. COVID, financial or economic uncertainty, instability, maybe fractured relationships under the pressure of lockdown and all of those kinds of things. Maybe it goes back longer and deeper than that. And you found yourself feeling, God, why haven't you done more good to me in my life than this? Over time, we can lose the wonder and joy of our salvation. We can start to focus on the things that God hasn't done for him that we want him to, rather than the wonder of what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. We can begin to focus on stuff that we think God has withheld from us, that we think would be good for us and that we'd rather like. Like the older son with the goat, you've withheld it from me, Father. All this time I've been here and you've withheld it. I've been a good Christian, I've done my bit. And then envy. Comparison. Pour fuel on that fire. As we 
look at what others have that we would want or we think we've earned or deserved and for some reason God hasn't given us. The thing that you want, they have. And you become angered, embittered towards God. The older brother's line was, you've done this for my brother, you've killed the fattened calf for him, but for me, you've not even given me a goat, Father. I deserve better than this. I deserve better than this. Isn't that just the lens that this world views things through so much? I don't know if you've noticed that. I think this lens is the primary way many of us are inclined to view the world. We deserve it. In fact, advertising, most advertising taps into that instinct of the human heart. That's how we're sold stuff. You deserve it. You're worth it. Go on. Treat yourself. You're worth it. I don't know if any of you saw the Tesco Christmas adverts last year. They even went like, they took that and ran with it the whole hog. They went even a step further. I don't know if you remember them. They really like stuck with me at the time. See, these adverts, people confessed the bad things they'd done that year. It was tongue in cheek, but they confessed the things they'd done. They knew that they'd done wrong. And the resounding response of these adverts was, relax, there is no naughty list. We're cancelling it. It's been a hard year. You deserve to have whatever you want. You deserve it. When we get like this in life, we've got to realise we've lost sight of the grace of God. At the start of our walk as Christians, we live with a, a right sense of awe at the generosity and goodness of God that he would welcome us. Of seeing, I, I deserve nothing. And yet in his mercy, I've received everything. I want to encourage you to think back to the moment that you first believed, the moment that you first put your trust in Christ. And that dawned on you, Lord, I, I deserve separation from you. I deserve nothing, and yet by your hand I've received all things, and by your grace I receive life, and life in all its fullness. How stunning the kindness of our Father. The Christian is someone who knows that they've received nothing but the gift of God. That every good and perfect thing comes from him. That every good thing you enjoy in this life is gift to you. It's not because you deserve it and it's not because you've earned it. It's his kindness towards you. And when you grasp that, when you understand that, you, you can't complain about what you don't have. It becomes impossible to grumble about what you don't have because you recognize that you have so much more than you deserve. <laughs> Lord, I, 
I deserve nothing, Lord. And yet in your kindness, there's breath in my lungs at your provision. <laughs> in your kindness, in your provision of all things. You can't complain about what he's withheld from you when you realize the abundance of what he's provided for you. To harbor any sense of resentment about what we don't have, I think just reveals that we fail to understand the grace of God. Guys, as Christians, we should be the most content and grateful people on the planet. We know that we don't deserve, and yet by his hand, we've received grace upon grace. Kindness on kindness. There's one of my favorite hymns by a guy called Horatio Spafford. It is well with my soul. And, and within it, he, he has that line. It says, whatever my lot. I'll say it's, he has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. There's a contentment that comes from knowing that we're held in his hand. There's a contentment that comes from knowing that everything is gift from him. But how does the father respond to the elder son? How does he respond to the, the self-righteous, proud, ungrateful outburst of the older son? How does he speak to the sickness of heart? In this older son. Well, he doesn't shout or get angry. <laughs> he doesn't say, How dare you, you ungrateful what's it? You not see all that I've provided for you as you live in my household? All that you've benefited from being around? No. What does he say? Well, he lovingly and gently exposes the sickness of his son's heart. And he refocuses him and he says this. He says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Why does the father say that? You are with me. You are with me all along. Everything I have is yours. But you're grumbling about what you don't have. A goat. Are you serious? Everything I have is yours. You're grumbling about what you don't have, but you have the most valuable thing of all. A relationship with me. The security of my love, of, of being in my household as my son. And everything here is yours. You don't deserve any of it, or you, don't, you didn't earn any of it. It's the father's estate. It's the father's wealth. The son hasn't earned it. He didn't accumulate this. He has access to it by virtue of the fact that he's a son. Everything here is yours, the father says to him. Because you're my son. As Christians, we have an inheritance that we've done nothing to earn. An eternal inheritance. All because of Jesus. Jesus who 
incredibly calls us co-heirs with him. There's all the inheritance that is rightly due to Jesus. He says, I share with you. I give to you. I invite you into to enjoy. When we trust in him to save us, we're adopted as sons in the household of God. We need reminding of that just as much as the older son did. See, the older son actually, when it boils down to it, wanted the same as his younger brother. The younger brother wanted all the father's stuff. He wasn't that interested in the father. Yeah, that's why it was so outrageous when he said, give me my share of the inheritance now, I'm off. It was like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I just want all your stuff. I want everything I can get from you, but I'm not that interested in you. And the older son actually wanted the same as his younger brother. He may have been prepared to wait until his dad died, but the desire was the same. He was more interested in what he could get from his father than on being with his father. And the father lovingly points this out to him. I believe he would lovingly point it out to us today. Says you've you've been with me all along, son. You're interested in what you can get out of this, but you've been with me in my presence, in in intimate relationship with me as my son. I'm right here. As Christians, we can easily end up in the same kind of place as the older brother, and we need this reminder. See, I'm convinced that God is a loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children. Yeah? We, we read that in Scripture. That's not wrong. <laughs> but the most valuable thing he gives us is himself, his presence, relationship with him. You were made for relationship with God. Humanity was created for intimacy, for relationship with God. The tragedy of sin, more than anything else, is that it separated us from God. Christ came to save us that we might be restored to him, that we might be restored to relationship with the Father, that we might be with him. He's the treasure. He's the prize. The most glorious thing about heaven isn't that there will be no more pain or no more sickness or no more... You know, we we talk sometimes about heaven and our focus can be on those things. Like all your struggles now will be no more. And that's gloriously true. All the sorrow, all the sad things, all the pain, all the heartache will, will be undone. And that's gloriously true. But it's not the most remarkable thing about heaven. The most wonderful thing, the greatest joy is that we'll be with him and that he'll be with us. That we will know him intimately, that we will experience his presence perfectly as his children. The greatest joy is that we'll be with him. And so I guess I want to ask you to consider, is there, it, it, has there begun to be a transactional reality to your relationship with God? Where you've begun to 
Look to him for what he can do for you. Begun to think, if I do this, then God will do this for me. Well, you've begun to grumble against him for the things that you feel like he's holding out on you over. The things you think you've deserved or earned that you don't yet have. Have you lost the wonder of, of knowing him and delighting in him and begun to seek him for what he can do for you instead of for just who he is? I want to invite you to come again, to know the joy of being with him, to let his grace warm your heart once more, to see all that you have as a gift from him every moment, every breath, as his kindness and his grace. There's one last condition, or one last kind of giveaway of the condition of the older brother's heart that we want to look at, and that's his callous, judgmental attitude towards his brother. I don't know if you noticed it. His brother, who's been gone for some years, has come home in rags, starved half to death, like so hungry that he wants to eat the pig's food, gets home in bits, but alive. And his older brother couldn't give a rip. He's so consumed with himself, with his wants, with what he deserves, that it leads to envy and anger towards his brother rather than compassion, rather than joy that his brother's home is angry towards him, is envious of him. And in his anger, he delivers the most chilling line. There's this. When this son of yours came home, In using that phrase, in speaking that way, he's distancing himself from his brother. He's cutting him off. He doesn't say, when my brother came home. When this son of yours. He won't view him or describe him as his brother. He disowns him. He speaks about him almost as though he belongs to a different family. His self-righteousness and his entitled grumbling attitude have led him to a point where he is consumed, so consumed with envy that he's, he, he can't see the plight of his brother. And all he's riled up with, he's, that son of yours has got what I deserve. Woe is me. When we lose sight of the grace of God in our lives, it leaves space for bitterness and envy towards other people. It leaves space for anger towards other people, resentment to grow. But when you know what God has saved you from, it produces humility in you. It stops this sickness of anger from taking root in our hearts when you know the depth of your own sin and rebellion, and you know that you haven't earned or deserved God's grace, then you don't look down on or judge others. You can have the same kind of attitude as Paul, who, who said this. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I'm the worst. It's Paul's perspective. It's so opposite to the spirit of the world. That we're fed an entitled message. Our egos are fueled. We're constantly told that we deserve it, that we're good enough. To the point that when we hear God loves us, we can respond with a kind of shoulder shrug. And like, yeah, sure. Like, why wouldn't he? I'm pretty epic. I deserve it. This is to utterly miss the point. Compared to the supreme holiness and splendor of God, we read in Scripture, our best efforts are like filthy rags. We don't even come close. And yet in his kindness... In his love, his compassion, God welcomes us home as sons and heirs. When we get that, we can't judge others. We don't get a superior attitude. We extend grace as we've received grace. We love as we've been loved. We invite people to come and enjoy the Father's embrace just as we have done to join the celebration in the Father's house. The older brother stood outside instead of enjoying the feast because of his pride and self-righteousness and offense that the father would welcome a sinner like his brother. The sickness of his heart robbed him from enjoying the blessing of his father. I don't know if you noticed that. He doesn't go in and enjoy the party. (laughs) He's so consumed. His pride and self-righteousness and judgment of others that he utterly misses out robbed him of the joy of being restored to right relationship with his brother and robbed him of enjoying the feast that his father had prepared. Don't let spiritual sickness rob you in the same way. We're going to come and share communion together now. Dave's going to come and lead us. But this simple meal of bread and wine, a meal of remembrance, of thanksgiving of what Jesus has done for us, As we come and receive it together, we celebrate what he's done. We celebrate that we've received in him all that we need and so much more. That we've received at Christ's expense the greatest gift of all. Intimacy with God himself. But if we come to the table self-righteous... If we come entitled and ungrateful, if we come grumbling against God for what he hasn't done for us that we hoped he might, if we come harboring envy and judgment, then it robs us of our joy. And it robs this moment of its power. I want to encourage you as we take communion today, allow this passage to serve as medicine for your heart. Take this time to repent where needed, to come back to the Father, to know the celebration of heaven, to join the feast. Rebellious hearts, maybe you know that you've been running away from God. You number amongst the rebels. Come. Come. Know the joy of sins forgiven 
as the younger brother returned and felt the warm embrace of his father. Know the joy of being welcomed into the father's house. Sin-sick religious spirits. Maybe it's you, maybe you know you've begun to fall into some of the same traps as the Pharisees and the older brother. I want to encourage you as we take communion, come back today. Delight yourself again in the kindness of your Savior. Wonder again that he would save a sinner like you, that he would extend grace to such as you. That he would welcome you in. Recognize again that every moment is gift. Allow his compassion and kindness to soften your heart towards others. That we would love as we've been loved by him. Dave, I wonder if you could come and pray for us and lead us in communion. Thank you.